I've read a lot of books for this show, and I mean a lot, and quite a few different genres too, but most of them have really fallen under the umbrella of the novel or short story collection or things that are more straightforward like that. I haven't gotten too many nonfiction, just a few here and there, definitely haven't gotten any poetry, and I definitely haven't gotten anything like this. Guys, I think somebody assigned me a textbook. Welcome to your favorite book. And my guest this week is the author of the upcoming novel, The Archer. Shruti Swami, how are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you doing, Madhika? I'm doing okay. Um, You were telling me earlier that, you know, it's a really busy week for you with, you know, school starting up and your new book coming out. Are you finding any time to relax at all with all that going on? (laughs) Oh, relaxing. What an interesting concept. (laughs) I'll have to try it sometime. (laughs) I think the same way. I, I always tell uh, people that I have done a free time, but I don't actually spend too much of it relaxing. I just fill it up with more and more active commitments and things to do. And I'm like, what is relaxing? <laughs> but um, Shruti, I am so excited to talk to you today. We have a lot of topics to cover, but before we get to all of that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. Um, I think it's a little bit easier for me to tell you about my work than <laughs> myself. What do I say about myself? Um, my, I, I have two books. One of them, came, the, my story collection, The House is a Body, came out last year, and my novel will be coming out on September 7th. Um, and that, that novel is called The Archer, and it's set in 60s and 70s era Bombay, and it's a coming-of-age story and kind of like a coming-into-artist story. It's a, a story about a woman finding her voice and sense of self as an artist um, through the intense uh, pursuit of Kathak dance. Um, Mm. And it's also a story about family and trauma and loss and how we reconcile, um, how we reconcile the legacy of our family and our family's history with um, the kind of person that we want to be in the life that we want to live. That is absolutely beautiful. And having read this book, that is 100% accurate. All of those things are well here on the page. I absolutely love the book, which we're going to talk about. Um, But before we get to the book specifically, whenever I have a guest who writes both short stories and novels, I always want to ask them, you know, what's different about the experience and things like that. I've asked that to Brandon Taylor and a few other guests, but um, to you, I'm going to ask you something slightly different. So from a writing craft perspective, say you have an idea, how do you decide whether that idea warrants a longer project or a shorter project? You know, is it by your level of interest or just what you're able to generate? Do you have a process? Take me through that for you. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I I think I've always known pretty much immediately whether it's a story or a novel. And usually a story has just, a, 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 the novel just has a bigger feeling to it that I understand that something is really I mean, I've only written two novels, so and one of them is just a drawer novel that nobody's going to read. So, you know, I haven't really written all that many novels to say this so confidently, but at least with this novel, with The Archer, I felt... I wound up writing um, just completely unbidden. I wasn't expecting to write this uh, first chapter. I was, I was actually at this residency to write a completely different project. And I just came sprung from my fingertips unbidden. And then I knew that it was, it was very obvious that that was the first chapter of a novel. I was set. There were so many things that were being set up there. And then I just spent years 
uh, trying to figure out what happened after that, that this, this chapter became like a dare to me. It was something that I could never put away. I knew that I had to write it and I would mm. just stare at it going, what happens now? What's the next thing? And I, I really spent a really long time figuring out a lot of it. I think with especially a first chapter like that, it tells you a lot. If you can listen to it, there was a lot of things that were all the relationships between people. There were too many relationships between people in just that first chapter for me to, mm. to feel complete just with a shorter work. So it felt clear to me that that was going to be a novel. Right. That makes a lot of sense because you're right. That very first chapter, it introduces us to a, a whole family and all their interconnected dynamics and just all these new characters coming and going as we go. And you're right, this this could not be captured in a short story. It would be a very different work. And so I like that that comes pretty much immediately to you. I am fascinated by your drawer novel. I know it's hard to say goodbye to projects, but sometimes you just have to. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it still lives with me. And it taught me a lot, actually. I never felt like it was a waste of time. It was always a pleasure. I felt like I was just thinking today, about writing The Archer, where I was like, I mean, it was hard and it was many, many years of work. But I, I now when I think of it, I sort of, you know, I have to say goodbye to it in another way because I'm completely done. I've done all my edits. Like, you know, they pried the manuscript out of my hands and said, this is final now, no more edits. So I'm not working on it anymore. And it's it was sad for me to leave that world and those characters because I had so much, I really enjoyed spending time there with them. I like that perspective because I, I feel like you could also see it on the flip side being like, oh my God, I'm done with this. Just take it away from me. I want to think about something else for a while. And But for you, it was more a little bit of a loss being parted with something you've created. <laughs> yeah. I mean, today it feels like that. <laughs> definitely. I've definitely been like, especially when you know you have to, when you publish a book, you have to read your book so many times that sometimes you're just like, what are words anymore? <laughs> this, this book is, I mean, I also, there was a few times where I just was like, should I give my advantage? back. What do I do about this? This book obviously can't be published. I don't know what to do. So you're just catching me in a good, in like a nostalgic moment, I think. I like that. I love that acknowledgement because I, I, I feel, I cringe inwardly when I'm just editing episodes of the podcast because I'm hearing my own voice. And that's just like one edit. Like I can't even imagine the number of times you have to read over your own work for a novel. That's a lot. And so bringing it to the Archer specifically, so as I mentioned, absolutely love this book. I am a sucker for stories that delve into the artist's journey and particularly the woman artist's journey because there's that innate struggle to balance societal expectations with a commitment to art. And I kept thinking the whole time reading this book about like, these articles you see on online and on like mommy blogger sites about like women having it all, you know, all these like fluff pieces that you see. And I was thinking about those because those are always written from a very white, modern, Western perspective. You know, the dichotomy is career and family. But here we're seeing this completely bursting open into a completely different part of the world, a completely different time period, very different societal expectations, and introducing a third conflict, which is art. And to me, it makes me wonder, you know, you know, in modern society, we don't even consider many times the creative path for women, even though it's years past when this novel takes place. And I don't know. I, I guess this isn't really a question. <laughs> I was intending to come to a question at the end of this, but just something that it got me thinking. And I'm like, why don't we see a creative path sort of honor the way we see other paths for women? 
Yeah, absolutely. That was exactly what I was thinking about when I was writing it. And as you say, it takes place in a different time and a different culture than American culture. And right now it's set in the 70s and the 60s. Um, and, and yet, you know, all of the many of the concerns that Vidya has, Vidya is up against a lot of pressures and obligations that are specific to her time and place. And also, I think that like one of the reasons I was drawn to writing this book was because I, I as a woman artist, have faced a similar uh, path or uh, similar obstacles, internal obstacles. I think this book, a lot of this book is about somebody who is trying to make a place for herself that where she has no model for, that she has no model mm -hmm. for. And she's trying to make a kind of art that she has no model for. And so this book is really asking how does somebody, it's not just how does somebody make art, but how does somebody make a life of art? Like how does somebody live a good life honoring all of their obligations and, and commitments and desires and still pursue art and especially a woman? How does a woman do that? And that was very close to my, I mean, that is something that I have been definitely as a woman artist been thinking through a lot. It's almost taboo in many ways for a woman to say, you know, my primary commitment is to art. It seems almost frivolous. You know, you can understand it if it's your family or your career or what have you. But art, it still feels like a radical statement to make. But for many of us, that's what we generate the most meaning from in our lives day to day. I mean, not saying that career and family aren't important, obviously, but art is such a it's a calling in many ways. And I, I love that Vidya's artistic medium short of choice is Kathak. And so um, I don't know too much about Kathak. I studied Bharatanatyam for a short amount of time as an adult, which is very oh, different cool. trying to do that as an adult versus as a child. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a lot of hand-eye coordination that you just don't know how to do when you're an adult, don't learn those skills as a child. So I felt like a big clumsy old and Also a lot of... Uh, leg strength required. My God. Oh my goodness. I only did it for a short amount of time when I was living in New York, but it, it changed me in so many ways. I, I loved the experience. And one thing I liked is that your book frames Kathak in many ways as an act of rebellion for Vidya. And Vidya, you know, her life in many ways probably would be easier if she wasn't so committed to Kathak. And I, I feel like nowadays, a lot of South Asian diaspora girls, you know, dance classes. It's one of those agreeable extracurriculars. You know, everyone does it. It's safe. But the history of Indian dance is so rooted in power and feminine expression and rebellion and then, you know, being suppressed by British colonizers. So I, I just love that you brought that spirit of rebellion back to Indian dance, especially from a diaspora perspective. And I guess I'm also just curious what inspired you about Kathak to bring it to life on the page. Um, that's such a great, those are wonderful observations and such a great question. Um, well, two things, the, the kind of more pedestrian one is that my mother is a Kathak dancer. Mm -hmm. She studied and performed Kathak for many years. So I got sort of, I never actually saw her perform, but I have all these like actually kind of incredible pictures of her in performance mm -hmm. um, that I used to look at and still do. Um, and she was, and in terms of like the research of this book, she was really helpful in just making sure that my Kathak was uh, up to <laughs> snuff, <laughs> that she she was satisfied with it. Um, but, you know, as I, why did I choose Kathak? I too studied Bharatanatyam actually when I was a child, very briefly, because um, I, I was, I rebelled against it and I didn't ever practice. And then my parents <laughs> threw up their hands and they said, grow like a weed. <laughs> That's what they also used to tell me. <laughs> I became a writer. So I guess I did grow like a weed. Um, Kathak, I think, I, you know, unlike 
like many of the Indian classical dance forms, it has a, a, a narrative component to it, but it also has this pure dance se- section, which is something that I mostly focus on in the book. And even I think at the times when it is narrative, I'm always like tucking a little pure dance in there because I think that there's something about that non-narrative, um, non-ornamented, absolutely, it's an austere, it's like a dazzlingly, it's like a white flame. It's like a dazzlingly austere um, ex- set, uh, expression. Mm-hmm. Um physical expression. And it does something because it's not narrative. It can bypass the limitations of narrative. Mm-hmm. Like narrative, the, those sections are beautiful, but require a certain level of cultural context, right? Yeah. To to feel, you don't necessarily feel the immediacy of those stories if you don't know the stories or if you don't know exactly, you know, what the um, in the in Kathak, what the Kavita is saying, if you don't understand the Kavita, then, you know, you're going to miss a big component of it. And of course, you need cultural context for all of it to really deeply appreciate it. But I think there's something very immediate about watching a body do that. And that that is before or beyond language It's before or beyond narrative. Mm. There's kind of like an ecstatic feeling to that and that you feel that in your body when you're watching it. So as somebody who's constantly grappling with language and narrative and its limits, there is something really seductive about uh, an art form that could just bypass it completely. That's such a great way of putting it. And it makes me wonder, you know, with something like that, a pure dance that defies narrative, sometimes defies expression, was it challenging to put words to paper about something like that? Yeah, I, (laughs) to be quite honest with you, I just don't remember. sections I think were some of the earliest sections I wrote were the dance parts Mm. and was it challenging um I don't know I was really interested in in writing about the internal experience versus the external experience so we rarely see another performance and when we do Mm -hmm. there's a kind of sympathy that the because it's Vidya watching that performance so she has a sort of sympathy in her own body about what that movement means like when she watches her teacher um, and I don't really think that I, those weren't the hardest parts of the book to write. I think, I, I think watching the, the wealth of videos that were available to me on YouTube and talking to my mom, doing research, like, I think it was, I mean, I wouldn't say it was easy, but I, I would say that it was intensely pleasurable to put, um, put that, try to put that into words. Right. And that joy comes across on the page. And even just that the effort Vidya puts in, like there's the, the section where she's perfecting her turns and she has to learn a new way of doing the turns because her last teacher uh, emphasized a fluid turn. And this teacher wants a slight gap in the turn. It's the tiniest detail. But Vidya agonizes over this to the point of she almost loses faith in things completely. And I was just, it just, I I kind of like that you emphasized more practice rather than performance, because that's where a dancer or any artist really finds out that they love the craft is not the few times they perform, but it's the work they have to do behind the scenes every day. Like that's what you have to derive some amount of enjoyment from. And that's what really what keeps you going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And so um, I guess another thing you you bring in this book, which um, is the story of Eklavia from the Mahabharata, which is a story I've always found heartbreaking. And I will preface that my experience with the Mahabharata is solely reading the comic Amar Chitrakadas when I was a kid. Like, yeah. that's I have like a three volume thing and we had it in our family and that's what I read. But 
even though that was years ago, I still remembered the story of Eklavia. And so when you brought that in here and reinterpreted it, it broke my heart. I don't want to spoil that particular myth since it's so innate to the book as a whole, but um, I, I, I guess I just wonder what struck you about that particular story. Yeah, I too had had many Amrachitra Kathas. And when I was thinking of the story, the version that I have in my brain is mostly from <laughs> Amrachitra Katha also, for better or for worse. Um, that story, I think, yeah, just what you're articulating, it's a heartbreak, it's a brutal, it's a brutal story. And it's actually a very complicated story. Mm-hmm. And I think so many of the myths are so many, especially these stories are so long and there's so many tiny little pockets like that yep. that contain so much ambiguity and nuance. Um, that story I've grappled with for many years. I can't understand it. Like it's such a brutal story that I wanted to find a way to understand it. And I don't think that, I don't know if my interpretation is totally like kosher. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if a Sanskrit scholar would agree with my interpretation, but it was important to me. It was important to me to make sense of why something so brutal could happen to somebody mm-hmm. so who was so pure hearted and so single-minded in his devotion to his craft. It, that that's exactly it. And I, I love that you address it directly, indirectly. There's so many different ways this myth is layered into the story. It really made this narrative just all the more richer. And I I don't know, I could go on about this book. Everyone, if you if this book has not been on your radar, I highly, highly recommend it. It's one of my my favorites I've read so far this year. I've read a lot of books this year for various purposes, <laughs> and I absolutely loved this book. And Shruti, thank you for writing it. Oh my God, thank you so much. <laughs> That's so nice to hear. <laughs> this meant a lot to me, like someone who's trying to pursue art, someone from a South Asian background, and just seeing what you were able to do here. I'm like, this is amazing. This is great. Um, anyway, uh, I want to turn this over to the other book for our discussion, which you suggested, Always Coming Home by Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, for those of you that may be unaware, brief summary, um, this is an ethnography, I guess that's the best way to put it, of the fictional Kesh people, which is an agrarian tribal society that Le Guin creates. Uh, this is a society that lives and thrives long after an apocalypse ends modern society. The book is sort of comprised as a set of oral histories, poems, uh, prose, and anthropological commentary on Kesh society. It is extremely different from any book I've ever read for this show. Um, very, very different. And surely I am interested in knowing, when did you first pick up this book and what were your impressions of it? <laughs> yeah, I do also want to say... Thank you so much for going on this wild, weird ride with me. I was really, I was really surprised and grateful that you were interested in reading this book. Um, I just read it a month ago and I was reading it. It takes place in the Napa Valley of the future. And I was reading it. I was in Mendocino for a couple of weeks. So it was just a couple hours north of that or like an hour or so north. So really similar landscape or like some of the... Um, you know, some of the the trees or the plants that she names or animals, there were overlaps where I was and where this book t- takes place. And um, I read it, I'd heard about it a long time ago and never, and I was like, that sounds really boring and weird. <laughs> and then I just was like, this is the right time to read this book. And it really was. There was something, I think particularly in this moment of environmental apocalypse, 
that yep. she is really consciously creating a utopian society, a post-environmental apocalyptic utopian society that it was just like um, like, a, like a bomb to read. And so one aspect that I was thinking about as I was um, as I was just looking it over to talk to you today is that there's this whole section in the book that's like Pandora speaks Pandora being like basically the writer. It's like a metafictional element. The whole thing is set in the future written from the present. And she's just acting as though it's real. Like, even yeah. though how can it possibly be real? And I understood that it was about writing. It was like this way where when you're writing, you see it really clearly and you know it's not real. And there's some parts, mm. there's the section, can I read it? Is that okay? It's really yeah, short. Do it. Um, there's this section, um, Pandora worries what she is doing, the pattern. Um, what does she get besides cut hands? Bitch, bits, chunks, fragments, shards, pieces of the valley, life-size, not at a distance, but in the hand to be felt and held and heard, not intellectual, but mental, not spiritual, but heavy, a piece of madrone wood, a piece of obsidian, a piece of blue clay, even if the bowl was broken and the bowl is broken from the clay and the making and the firing and the pattern, even if the pattern is incomplete and the pattern is incomplete, let the mind draw its energy, let the heart complete the pattern. And, you know, as I was reading that today, I was just struck by how she's just said she's absolutely encapsulated the, the creative process, or at least how I've experienced it. There's something almost physical or tangible or a way that you know something that you know you've also made up and the heart completes the pattern. Um, yeah. I found that like just another element of this book that I was so moved by. That's so interesting. So the first thing you have to comment on is the fact that you read this a month ago and it's already made such an impact on you that you you hold this in such high regard. And I, I like that you mentioned the environmental context of this book because that definitely comes so strong, so comes so strongly onto the page. The fact that um, Ursula K. Le Guin, she, she recognizes that an apocalypse is coming and there is going to be an end to our society based on how we are treating the planet, but something else can come from it. And this mm -hmm. is years down the line, years later. You can almost read it as hopeful. To me, I don't think I would go that far as to read it as hopeful because there is something about this society. And I think that's part of the reason this book didn't completely work for me. It, it felt very bleak to me, like mm -hmm. just the way some of these stories are rendered uh, the sparse writing style, a lot of it felt very bleak. Mm. And I, I'll point to specifics as we go, but I, I think just to preface everything as a whole to everyone, uh, so you're aware, I'm being, being completely transparent. I didn't finish the book. I kind of struggled through it. Um, and a lot of the reasons have nothing to do with the quality of the book. There's, It's mostly that I first tried to approach this as a novel, which it definitely isn't. Um, I picked this up almost completely blind and then I was like, poems, uh, uh, history, textbooks, footnotes. And I, I just mentally was not prepared for the kind of focus this book called on. The, what I did read of it, there was a lot that made an impact on me, but it does require a certain amount of focus and also understanding that this is not a novel. It is a textbook with you know snippets of prose, a little bit of everything, the sheer compilation of this book was extremely impressive. Just to me, it was not quite enjoyable, which I think, you know, are very different things. 
Yeah, fair enough. But I would disagree with you. I think it is a novel. <laughs> I just really? think okay, it's a me. completely, I mean, what is a novel? You know, like this is a fictional, like this is a fiction, like that. it's um, one of the essays in the back of the book. Also, it's funny that you said that you didn't finish it because especially my edition is the, um, it's the Library of America edition. And so it has some like extra stuff in the yes, back. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like sort of doesn't have an end because then at like, right. the end you're like, here's a glossary. Like, I don't care. I'm not going to read these, this dictionary or whatever. Right. So it kind of like, it doesn't really have an end, which is mm-hmm. very fitting for the book because it's all about like movement and circling. And yes. it's like always coming home. Like there's like, it's like in the press, you know, it's like always becoming. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's funny. So I like I kind of didn't finish the book either. You know what I mean? Like, is there an end to this book? And clearly not, right. because Le Guin herself was continuing to come back into this world and create more material even after this book was published. Um, yeah, I think it is a novel. I think that it's a fictional imagining of a world, and what it's doing is keeping place at its center. The central character is a culture and a place and a land almost more mm-hmm. than the people. And in order to be able to do that, you have to like have a completely unconventional narrative structure because and because you can't tell a linear story like that. And so to me, this is this is definitely a novel. It's just not a it's not a like a, a straightforward one. Right. That's definitely a great way to put it, because I didn't think about that as setting and culture as sort of our protagonist in a sense. I mean, you like the parts of the, the story I definitely connected to most were Pandora's portions of it, because to me, I guess for expecting a more conventional read, she was the closest to a protagonist we really got Mm -hmm. was her sort of, you know, outsider's perspective looking in. And so her tellings and her sort of explanations of the culture and the parallels to writing as well, you know, those sort of resonated with me. But then I found myself getting lost in some of the folk tales and the poems and and things like that. And, And I'm also interested in how you feel about how this was organized because so... The beginning of this, it starts out with the first stone telling, um, which is part of a, a multi-part narrative taking place, written by one of the Kesh people. And we're introduced to all the settings and all the terminology all at once. And you are very, very lost. And then right after that, it's explaining, oh, here are the nine houses. Here's what red adobe and a city and all of these mean after that. And we see that a lot happening in this book where we're given all of the prose first and then kind of told what it all means later. It kind of turned it on its head for me, and I'm still kind of struggling with whether or not I liked that or not. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I just, I, I, I'm i a big Le Guin head. This was like one of, and actually, luckily, when she, when she died a few years ago, I was like, no, we need you. Like, there's some people mm. in the world, like, also, I think Toni Morrison died that, that same year. And that mm. had been like, right after the election it was like a couple years after the election. And honestly, I would just go in my brain sometimes and be like, W.S. Merwin is still alive in the world. Ursula Le Guin is still alive in the world. Toni Morrison is still alive. Like, it was like really comforting to me to just know that they existed. And when she died, I was just like, wait, <laughs> we still need you. Come back. Um, it really, you know, I was celebrity like. Celebrity crushes is right. Yeah, like, you know, our celebrity really, deaths that we mourn. Yeah, it was just like, it was really crushing. Um, and I've always felt a deep kinship with her work. Um, and this was one of the books. I mean, I, I was going to say this is one of the few books I hadn't read yet, but that's actually not true because she has an incredibly, she was at least a very prolific writer and has a huge body of work. And I have not read all of it. Um, but mm-hmm. something that's really common to her work, and it's actually something that's been really instructive to me, um, 
the way that she writes about culture, like alien technology, maybe, or in this case, culture, you know, um, sometimes we're on different planets, sometimes we're in the future, you know, there's Mm -hmm. all sorts of things that are happening that are unfamiliar to our world, um, that it's sort of actually similar to the way that I deal with culture in my books, in that Mm. I don't want to explain, I want to give enough context so that the person can just be like, and obviously, like, you can Google Mridungam, but you can't Google whatever, (laughs) like, whatever thing is in the, in this, I can't think of any words, the hey, yeah, yeah, or whatever. You can't necessarily, I mean, maybe you can now at this point, because this book is so, (laughs) is is like, probably digitized or whatever. But it's Mm -hmm. not the same, obviously. You can, I am also relying on like an external body of knowledge that if somebody is interested in and they can do more research and I don't have to answer everything, I don't have to have a glossary, but I still think there's something really powerful about presenting a culture to somebody and being like, just come on in. This is my experience of my culture. I'm not going to explain it to you. I trust that you can like catch up with me. And I am just going to like show you what my world is. There's like a way where you get to be really close to somebody's consciousness because they're Mm -hmm. not. They're, they're not separating you from them. They're not saying, oh, here, come on in. This is totally unfamiliar to you because you're a different person. They're saying like, welcome into my experience and you'll figure out whatever you need to. So yeah. that's actually been kind of an instructive thing. I mean, this is a weird case because um, because this is such a weird book. <laughs> but in general, I, I think I've really learned a lot from the way that she handles culture in that way. That's a great point because I... I when I read, you know, sometimes you read a book by a writer and it's introducing a culture that is not yours and they're italicizing all of the foreign words or, mm-hmm. you know, over explaining everything. And that can feel tedious, whether you're in or outside of that culture. And somehow I was expecting that more for Le Guin's book, probably because this was a completely new culture and that was what it was about. But you're right that I did enjoy when I was able to piece things together and figure things out. I liked that rather than having every single thing spelled out for me immediately. I liked being able to draw those connections and remember, oh, yes, this was mentioned here. Now I see where this fits. You know, that's a great immersive experience for the reader. And I did like getting to know this culture that she made. There, While some of it did feel very bleak to me, um, there were some parts I found really beautiful. I think one of them being how she writes about death and dying in this culture. Mm-hmm. The, the, they have these songs that they sing as a person passes away. Um, they, they have three different forms of, you know, a soul death, a breath death, things like that, where you lose those pieces. And, and then finally your body is cremated. And there was just a lovely sort of honoring there, there that I really appreciate. And you can tell she's drawing on other cultures. You know, she drew a lot of inspiration from Native American cultures and, there was just a reverence there that I really admired. I found myself reading over those passages more than once. I just really liked what she did there. Yeah, definitely. I, um, I too, I felt that way as, as well. There's a lot of songs that are like marking different times and there's like some stuff, there's some songs about pregnancy and birth. And then there's some, mm. there's like a song about menopause where I was like, would that I lived in a culture that celebrated all of those things with singing. That's so beautiful. Right. Absolutely. It's such a communal culture. And I think that's what she's creating. And she's creating a culture that lives in harmony with nature. You know, there's that aspect of honoring uh, an animal before you kill it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot to that. And just a respect for the world that the characters that the the Kesh people live in, which, 
definitely falls in contrast from sort of the climate apocalypse we're in right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, just these climate crises that are going on, you see sort of an alternative there. Although I, I think some of the discussions of things like population growth and those were a little odd for me. Um, I'm a genetic counselor, so in my professional life, so seeing some of the stuff about, you know, miscarriage and, you know, in, intermarrying and, and things, it's like my, my clinician brain kept coming out and I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about this, but I can see what she was trying to do. She was trying to present a society that lived in harmony with other living things rather than seeking to overpopulate them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a really moving part at the very end. It's a poem and it's from the Kesh people to us. And they're singing mm-hmm. like, we are your daughters. We are your sons. We are your children. We are com-. like, I just I was so moved by that. This idea that, um, yeah, that this could be like that in some ways, like we like the book calls us on us specifically sees the gaze of the book looks out to us. That, yeah. that felt really beautiful to me. I love that too. That's a great point. And I, I'm i interested. So you mentioned you're a big Le Guin fan. This was the first Le Guin book I had ever read. Oh, had sorry. <laughs> oh, no, That's this is really different than all the other Le Guin books. You, oh, no, sorry. <laughs> probably not the starting point, correct? You know, yeah. is there one of the books you'd recommend as her starting point? Yeah, well, Lathe of Heaven is a really good, it's really short. She she's excels in the novella form, which I mm. think is a totally underappreciated form. It's actually my favorite form probably. Um, So Lathe of Heaven is basically a novella and it's a, if I told you what it was about, you would be like, that sounds dumb, but it's actually exquisitely beautiful and, and deeply richly meaningful. It's about a man who wakes up realizing that he has a power to change the uh, reality through his dreams. Like whatever he dreams literally comes true, but he can't control it. So it's just that whatever. And so he goes to a therapist to help him with this problem. And the therapist starts to understand that he can he can harness this power. And you um, it's a very strange book in that the concept is really strange, but she's such a warm and humane writer that it just it winds up talking about a lot. It goes into some extremely strange places, but in a in a way that keeps a story and the characters at the heart of the of the gaze. Um, and also my favorite of her books is the dispossessed, which is longer and it takes place, um, on this planet called, there's two planets called Urus and Anaris. And Anaris is an anarchy planet that, um, Urus is kind of like a decadent capitalist planet. And Mm -hmm. Anaris is a like utopian socialist, utopian slash dystopian planet, like society and somebody, and they basically, they have like a trade relationship, but nobody's ever traveled between these two planets since they were formed. And since the society and Anaris was formed and a scientist, um, like basically exiles himself to, uh, from Anaris exiles himself to Urus and, uh, wow, that doesn't make it sound very interesting. It's so incredible. She just has such a rich imagination for these different cultures. And mm. something that I love about her so much, and this really comes with, I think I can see a, a, a clear line from her upbringing to the kind of work that she did, because she mm-hmm. is a daughter of an anthropologist and grew up with all of the people that his, that her father was studying Um and I think just like profoundly had a sense of a flexible sense of culture 
and yeah. and understanding from a really early age that the things that we took for granted as an as American and maybe think she took for granted as a white American were just like totally arbitrary and not necessarily the ultimate truth. Um, and so from that flexible thinking, she's able to imagine these cultures that feel like, like this culture, like the cash people, right? Like yeah. she, there's like a completely different worldview and she takes that worldview and then she extrapolates it into all these different ways. And I, I haven't really um, seen that. I, I haven't seen anybody with that ability to do it the way that she does. Now you're making me motivated because at first I was reading this and I was wondering, you know, is she not a writer for me? And I'm like, no, maybe I just started with the wrong work. And so now I'm thinking like, I'm definitely fascinated by what she's able to do with culture. And you're right, that broader understanding that the, you know, American way is not the only way, that there are alternate ways of thinking about things and living in different ways. And there are valid aspects to a lot of those ways of living. You can clearly see that on the page here. And I'm definitely interested in some of her fiction. And I also, I'm glad that you acknowledge the novella as an underrated form. I completely agree. I, I just think that there, I wish there was more of a market for novellas because I love them so much. And they're just, it's such a sweet spot for writing, you know? Yeah. You can really be perfect in a novella. Like you can be perfect in a short story. And I actually think that if novels are perfect, they're sort of like dead on the page. There's like, that's not a goal. I don't think mm. that should be a goal for a novel. I think novels get their energy from their like capaciousness and their like messiness. Um, oh. But I think you can be perfect in a novella, but still have more time to develop a lot of stuff that you don't have enough time in a short story. So it's a really, I love novellas a lot. Yeah, that's an interesting because I'm thinking that too, because I've read some novels that are brilliant stylistically, but this the style eventually wears on you, you know, and you you eventually just want to break free and do something a little different with the length. But those short stories, if you keep up that same style, like that's still arresting to you. And even in a novella form, that's a great point about perfection kind of being a downfall in a longer work. And so Shruti, I mean, I feel like there's so much more we could talk about with uh, Le Guin with with this book. And I definitely did get a lot from what I did read of this book. I, I do anticipate that I will come back to this at some point, but I think I just need to be in the right headspace for something as cerebral and thought provoking as something like this. Um, but Shruti, I'm really interested in knowing, and I know my, my guests love this part of it too. Do you have some other books out there that you'd recommend? You've already given us some Le Guin recommendations, but maybe some other books that you either really, really love or are reading and something you'd like to recommend to the broader audience. Um, well, I'm reading this really wonderful book of poetry called Curb by Divya Victor. Have you read this book before? I have not. So this is another thing. I am a terrible poetry reader. So that was probably another reason why this book kind of caught me off guard. I'm like, I don't know how to read poetry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that I can definitely go into phases where I'm just like, what, what are words or whatever. But she, I don't know, there's something about the way I read her other book, Kith, recently, and was mm -hmm. just like, really, it's really worth, it's really worth spending time in it, both of these books, because she's tying together so many things so beautifully. Um, so I'm halfway through Curb right now, and I really love it. And I was just finished reading this book called Finding the Raga by Amit Chaudhry. Um, mm. That was just incredible. I, I sort of wish that I'm, I think I'm both glad that I didn't read it and also like sort of wish that I had read it while I was writing my novel. It's about North Indian classical music, mostly. He actually does talk about Kathak a little bit and it's, it's nonfiction. Um, mm -hmm. And he's a beautiful writer. Um, I've read some of his novels and really enjoyed them, but this book is like, 
um, it's, you know, he's writing all about music and he's a beautiful music writer. So it just, um, I grew up listening to a lot of Indian classical music uh, in my house. Like my mom is a dancer. My dad is a Indian classical musician. He plays the Bansuri flute and he also sings and has studied both North Indian and South Indian classical music. Um, so grew up with a lot of music in my house, but never really had a way into it necessarily. Mm. It's sort of like my mom used to speak Gujarati to me when I was like a baby, but then never again. So I don't understand Gujarati, but when I hear Gujarati, there's like a sense of familiarity or something or comfort. It like, it like almost like physically resonates with me, even though I'm like, I don't understand what you're saying. You know, it's like the language of my mother. So it felt the same way that there's like, when I listen to Indian classical music now as an adult, I find it incredibly beautiful. And I don't come to it exactly as an outsider because I grew up listening to it, but there's a lot like that I don't know about it. And it's an incredibly vast body of knowledge. So this was a beautiful way into that. I love that. And I definitely want to check those out. I, I need to get better about reading poetry, first of all, because I remember enjoying it. I've just never really found the poems that resonate with me post-college. Um, but uh, your topic on Indian classical music, I mean, I grew up with a lot of Malayalam show tunes, which is a little different, but I, I feel that same sort of, you know, it, it, I don't speak Malayalam as well as I wish I did, but I hear it. I hear some of those songs again, and it, it just brings something back for me. And I find myself like finding them on YouTube, like wanting to listen to them again. And even though as a kid, I was like, mom, these are so old. Stop. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, there's something about it. And so, and yeah, a lot of, even those show tunes are rooted in classical music tradition. And so that's fascinating to me. Um, off topic a bit, but if you're new to poetry, mm-hmm. how do you kind of find a way into it? Do you feel that there is a way to sort of access poetry beyond, say, the, the mainstream poets that we're all kind of taught in school? You know, what are our what are the best ways into something like poetry? Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> I I do find it really difficult to browse poetry. Like I know how to browse fiction, but poetry when mm-hmm. you open, like I'll usually like open the first page and be like, I don't know, this seems good. You know, I'm I'm usually never like, oh yes, this book. Um, I don't know. I think just it feels I often read poetry before I write because I feel like the kind of attention that it requires for me, it like smooths out my like if I'm like, you know, um, have a really high like I'm on a high vibration or something. Um, mm-hmm. It just smooths my thoughts out or makes them slower and, and deeper. Um, so I don't know. I think just like maybe thinking of it more as a meditation rather than as like a like I think that we go and we can like really go into novels being like yum yum. What's the story? You know, and <laughs> that this just having a different expectation of just like what do the words sound like and what do they make me feel and um, and reading it aloud can really help too. But I don't know. I'm no poetry expert. <laughs> to me, anyone who reads poetry and picks it up on their own is a poetry expert. So, but I love those. I love that piece of feedback. And I think that's something I can definitely keep in mind because I'm definitely, a, I'm going to pick up this book and I'm going to devour it. But poetry requires, you know, a little more intention, a little more time, it makes me pace myself and quiet my brain down and I think those are skills we all need, but can be hard to put into practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And so, Shruti, this has been an absolute pleasure, you know, talking through these books, just getting to pick your brain. And you gave me more perspective on Always Coming Home that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And I'm coming at it with even more appreciation for the book. And so thank you for that. And if everyone wants to find you, how can we find you in your work? 
Um, probably the easiest way would just be, and my website is shrithiswami.com. So you can just find me that way. And I have like Twitter or whatever, but I'm like not good at it. So it's probably not worth it. <laughs> I'm terrible at Twitter. Yeah. Like, I'm able to only keep up one social media platform at a time. For me right now, it's Instagram. I get overwhelmed by everything else. And it's like, ugh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll have a link to the website. Definitely check out The Archer when it is out. Uh, so by the time the episode is in the world, so will the book. So definitely pick up this book. I loved it. I think you'll all love it too. Shruti, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Malvika. Mm-hmm.